wonderful event. Uh, yesterday, we had people come out to pack 440 boxes. That was incredible. You all came out and packed and packed and packed, and that is just a huge praise. Uh, not only did you come out and, and pack, but uh, record time, an hour and like 15 minutes or so for 440 boxes. That's just incredible. Uh, I mean, there was a line waiting to just grab a box to, to fill it. Uh, I saw people just kind of waiting and talking and chit-chatting. It was just incredible to see the energy in the fellowship hall as uh, those boxes were being uh, packed up and getting ready. Of course, we see out here, it, it's just incredible. And then the time of fellowship afterwards was really nice. It was uh, thank you all who participated and helped uh, in grilling and getting tables ready and uh, taking trash out and bringing food. Thank you all so much for it. It was a, a great time. I heard a lot of uh, positive comments from the foreign exchange students. They really enjoyed it. They really jumped into to everything. Uh, I even saw them painting pumpkins and playing volleyball and, and everything. I mean, it's, I thought it was just going to be the little kids painting pumpkins, but there was teenagers there painting pumpkins. I was like, well, okay, why not? Uh, it was a really neat experience. Uh, so thank you all for helping. And uh, it was a great time of fellowship and packing up those boxes. But we have to the 14th to, to bring in another 440 at least. So, uh, you know, keep on shopping, keep on looking for stuff, and we'll praise the Lord for that. Uh, those are great testimonies that we hear. Uh, today is um, what most celebrate as uh, Halloween. It's also the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on um, the uh, church door, and uh, they were, God used those to kind of push forward a, um, a movement of, of the Reformation. And it's a, a really neat thing. It wasn't like he was complaining about the color of carpet or the chairs or the pews that they got. There were theological issues that had deep implications for it. I, I thought about dressing up as a monk today and coming, but I, I thought with two years in, I'd better not risk it. I'd just wait maybe another 10, and then I'll do that. Uh, but it, it, it's had an impact even to this day, even to this day, uh, where there's a constant need to be looking at the scriptures and seeing how do we get ourselves as close as we can to the scriptures? Uh, how do we continually change? Because it's easy to get caught off in something, and we want to just stay with the scriptures. We're in Matthew chapter 26, and we're at verse 36. Uh, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, all the way to verse 46. The Word of the Lord says, Then Jesus came with him to a place called Gethsemane, and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to grieve and distress. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, "You, uh, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? 
Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second, again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who is betraying betrays me is at hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. This is a very difficult text, one very difficult to apply as well. And we really recognize our need for the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, to convict us of those areas that we need to be changed. We know it's your will, Father, that we become more like Christ and less like ourselves. And I I pray now that your Spirit would use your word for that end, for that purpose. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. may be seated. Have you ever looked at a situation that um, you thought, there is uh, no way this is going to happen. Uh, like, for example, a truck breaks down and somebody with like a, uh, a little Fiat 500 tries to tow them along. Like that, that's not going to happen. You know, the little Fiat 500 isn't going to take, isn't going to be able to pull that big truck. Or um, some other type of situation where you think, what they're trying to do has a lot of heart in it, has a lot of good intentions, but it doesn't matter how much effort they're going to put into this, it's really not going to do anything. They might as well just stop. Like, for example, uh, a truck getting stuck uh, at the beach in the sand, and uh, the father is there pressing the accelerator, and the two small children are in the back trying to push. It doesn't matter how hard those kids push. That truck's not moving. They, They need more power. Prayer is one of those things that when we look at it, many times we think, that doesn't have any power. That's not going to accomplish what I want. That's not going to do what I'm looking for. It's not going to help my career change. It's not going to help my family situation. There's really no power in prayer. And that's usually how we act. That's usually how we look at the situation. Now, where we're at in this text Jesus had just said that he's going to meet them after he dies in Galilee. And that is an incredible statement of grace and love and mercy and hope for these disciples. But it's going to increase the the amount of grace and hope and so forth. We're going to see it grow even more and more as we look at what Jesus goes through on one side and how the disciples act on another side. That, we'll see how the disciples act, we'll see that this grace of God is just more and more incredible uh, as as we follow through with it. Now, as we're looking at this, Jesus is going to teach his disciples that obeying God is hard. It's difficult. Uh, But praying will strengthen you to obey God's will. Jesus, that's what he's going to be teaching his disciples, that obeying God is, is hard. At times it's extremely hard. But praying will strengthen you to obey God's will. Uh, The first thing that we see in this text from verses 36 to 38 
is that following God can, can be difficult. We, we see in verse 36 is that then Jesus came to the place called Gethsemane. It's the olive press. It's the place where they uh, put the pressure on the olives to get the oil out. He's at the Mount of Olives, but now he's specifically in this garden where there's this olive grove and this press. And he goes and tells his disciples, sit here while I go over there. So they arrive to a certain point that they're not going to go past. And he's going to move forward and he's going to pray. Now, praying is, uh, if we just looked it up in, in a dictionary, it's, it's to make a petition uh, to a deity. It's to make a petition to a deity. Jesus started his ministry in the book of Matthew by sitting at the, doing the Sermon on the Mount, and there was a people gathered around him, and he starts to talk about this. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, is the first time we see this mention of prayer, and it says, um, But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Had Jesus just said uh, to pray for those who persecute you, you might assume that you could pray that lightning would come down and consume them, they'd you know, burn up or whatever, uh, that they would get a pestilence or you know something. But he, he quali- uh, qualifies this a little bit by saying, love your enemies. So now it, it kind of uh, sets a certain standard for how that prayer is going to be. Uh, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Especially uh, now that we're looking at this in, in this context. He starts his ministry off here, and now he's about to finish his ministry. Is he going to practice what he taught, what he preached? We also see that this um, mention of prayer we see in Matthew chapter 6, 5-13. through 13. It's kind of more of an extensive section where he is involved in talking about prayer. And he says, don't, don't pray like the hypocrites. How they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they might be seen by men. And they, they've gotten their reward. You see these people, they, they, they talk and they talk just normal, but then all of a sudden they're asked to pray. And, and their voice gets deep. And they're calling on God. You know, I mean, it's like totally changes their sentence formation. And you're like, what happened? You know, what, <laughs> what's going on here? Uh, what's transformed? They try to get attention. Don't pray like that. Just go into secret and pray. Don't, don't be involved in meaningless repetition, as the Gentiles do. Uh, he, he, he says, uh, rather, pray in this way. Our Father, which is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Is he going to be submitted to the will of God now that it's going to be difficult? It's what he taught. Will he follow through with it? Well, we'll see. On earth as it in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Basically, we're right back where we started. Jesus starts his ministry by addressing prayer, and now he's in the garden, and he is praying. He's praying. He's practicing what he, what he taught. And it says in the verse uh, 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Uh, he took them along a little bit further into the garden, and, and he began to grieve. 
It, it's, uh, it shows a, a, a strong emotion. It, it's the same word that's used in Matthew 19.22. You, you remember the situation where the uh, rich young ruler came and uh, he was interacting with Jesus and talking about how he could inherit the kingdom of heaven. And, and finally, Jesus says to him, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And the reaction of the young rich ruler was that he was grieved because he had much possessions. It's the same word. You can imagine if you had to sell everything and just give it away. And, and, and that feeling that you would have here, Jesus is grieved and, and, and he's distressed. He's troubled, it says. He, he's, uh, he's grieved and distressed. It, it shows this kind of... Uh, feeling that he has. Now, we have to ask ourselves the questions, why is he feeling this way? Why does he feel in this, this manner? He, he's known for a while, he knew all along that he was going to be betrayed. He, he knew that he was going to be turned over. He knew he was going to be killed. In fact, he says in, in, in John that just as the snake was lifted up, so also the Son of Man will be lifted up for the forgiveness of sins. So he, he knew he's going to die. Why is he now distressed? And, and how are we supposed to understand this? Well, many commentators talk about this and they really get themselves into writing heretical comments because uh, there is this human side of Jesus. He is human, but he is 100% God. He is totally God. He's God in flesh. And, and, and there he is, and he's grieving. He... he He's distraught by this. Why? What, what's caused him to do this? What new information does he have? What's bring, brought him to this situation that he feels in this manner? And he says to them in verse 38, My soul is deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. This word doesn't appear anywhere else in the book of Matthew. Only here. None of the other interactions, none of the other situations, none of the people that he's healed were deeply grieved. No, no other word is used to describe a person in the book of Matthew except Jesus at this point. This is how he is feeling. He is deeply grieved, sorrowful, all to the point of death. Death. I, I can't imagine what this feels like. I, I've been be honest, the, the, the spoiled child of God. I, I've gone through life rather blessed. And, and I don't know, I really don't know what this was like, how to feel this. The, the closest I can imagine this is when I've had to uh, be with people who uh, have lost a, a child. And you see the, the grief that they go through. They, they thought that they were going to be buried by their children, but there they are, there's the casket, there's, they're burying them. The pain that they feel to the point of death. How, how is Jesus feeling this? And why is he feeling it now? He, he's known all along, why has he not been feeling it the whole time? Why is he now feeling in this way? Verse 38, he says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now that word watch is this idea of being alert. 
uh, to, to be alert. He tells them to remain, which is a command, it's an imperative, and to uh, stay awake, to stay alert. And, and the and, uh, keep watch with me, that with me, has the idea that this keeping watch with him is interacting in the same type of behavior that he's going to be doing. So that he's going to be going and praying. He doesn't use the word praying for what they're supposed to do, but they're supposed to be keeping alert, keeping watch with him, which is this idea that they're going to be interacting in the same manner, praying what he is, what he is doing. Now, as we look at this, we see that Jesus is very, very grieved. And we have to ask ourselves, why? What, what is causing him to be so grieved? Well, there's maybe a, a couple different reasons. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you remember there's the, the prophecy that uh, there will be this seed that will come from the woman who will uh, step on, his, his heel will be bruised, by the serpent, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Is he upset that his heel is about to be bruised? Is he grieved that he's going to go through this situation that his heel will be bruised? Is this what's causing him to be in such a, uh, in such a state? I can't imagine that that's what's bothering him. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, it's found in the context of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And in the 70 weeks of Daniel, it's, it's uh, giving these prophecies of what will happen with Israel. And it'll get up to a certain point when the Messiah will be cut off. He'll be on the earth and then be cut off. Hey, is, he, is he upset that he's going to be cut off? Maybe he had some plans of going and swimming in the Mediterranean. Maybe going down to the Dead Sea and floating and doing the mud bath like what people do when they go to Israel. Or maybe he thought he would go uh, do some camel riding and, and sightseeing over in the desert of the Negev. And, or, or maybe go skiing up on Mount Hermon. What? Is he sad that his life is coming to an end? I can't imagine that that's it either. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8, it says that Christ humbled himself by putting on flesh, became a servant. If anything, this is would be, uh, be back with his father up in heaven. What in the world is causing this grief? And I think the most concise answer we can find is in Isaiah chapter 53. It's in Isaiah chapter 53 that we see that uh, here comes this Messiah, and he'll suffer, there'll be all types of suffering, but specifically, the sins of us all will be put on him. He'll take the wrath of God on him. The sins of the whole world being put on, on Jesus. And you might stop and think about that and you say, well, that doesn't seem so bad. And it's true that we would think that way because we love sin. We, we have fun with sin. We enjoy sin. In fact, if we had the opportunity, if we had the opportunity that Gary would never find out that I would do a certain sin, I would run to it. And you would too. And you would too. Because we love sin. But God hates sin. God is pure. God is holy. He doesn't sin. He has never sinned. He never will sin. But in a matter of hours, he will have all the sins of the world 
on him. And he loathes it. He hates it. What's the thing that you hate the most? What, What is it that you dislike the most? Imagine multiplying it by a thousand times and having to endure that. Here he's got the sins of the whole world on him and it grieves him. Why must he suffer? Maybe there'd be another way. Why, why suffer in this way? I mean, there was other times where, where Jesus was about to be stoned and he walks away. And there was another time where he was about to be thrown off a cliff and he uh, departs from them. Why not just depart again? Maybe you could go to the coast of Italy. That should be nice. Or, or maybe go to uh, some other place and minister there. Why go through the suffering? Because we are dead in our sins. We are separated from God. The punishment for our sin is death. Now, we could die for our sins, but we would be a guilty person dying for our own sins. And it takes eternity to pay for that. That's why the punishment is eternal damnation. Eternally separated from God. If you were to die for your own sins, you are eternally, because it would take all eternity to pay for the offense that we've done to God. But if a righteous person dies for the unrighteous, oh, that would appease God's wrath. God would accept that. It would be a righteous substitute. God's blood, Jesus' blood, would redeem us, would buy us out of sin, and he would reconcile us to God. That's that's what it would do. A person dying for their own sins, well, they're already guilty. They deserve. And if you're going to pay for your own sins, it takes all eternity. And there's no getting out of that. But if a righteous person dies, oh, it acts as a substitute. It buys us out and it reconciles us to God. Following God can be very hard at times. It can be very difficult. But not only is following God very hard at times, Sometimes it's very lonely. Sometimes it's just very, very lonely. In verse 39, we see that Jesus went a little beyond them and fell on his face. A lot of commentaries will try to soften this word fell uh, to kind of have this idea that he somehow was praying and then he got on his knees and then he ends up on his face. But really the idea of the word is that he right on his face in anguish. Grieving, he's he's praying. And his prayer says, My Father, if it is possible. I don't know if you're into this type of stuff or not, but that's what's called a first-class conditional sentence. It assumes a possibility of something that isn't, it's just for the sake of the argument. It's not that it is true. It's just if it could be true, then he would prefer that this cup pass from when the world is this cup? The cup is being used as a metaphor. And it has this uh, idea of wrath. Uh, for example, it's used in Matthew chapter 20, verse 22 and 23. You remember the situation where the mother of John and, and James comes up to Jesus and says, I want my sons to be on your right hand and on your left hand. And Jesus says, can they drink from the cup that I drink? They will, but... You don't know what you're asking for. 
It also was used in Matthew 26, verse 27, where that cup ends up representing the shed blood of Jesus for our sins, for forgiveness of our sins. And he asked, can this cup be removed? But then he says, not as I will, but as you will. Now, many times we will say those words, that God's will be done. I'll stay here in my job if the Lord wills. And then we put out 500 resumes to other places. That's not really submitting ourselves to the will of God, right? Or if God wills, I'll stay with my wife and then we go calling up divorce lawyers. That's not really submitting yourself to the will of God. That's just saying something. He's not going to take off running. He's going to submit to the will of God by staying, by being in a place. He says, uh, your will be done. He wants God's will to be done. He's yielding to the Father. And notice that he says, he addresses God as my Father, not as Father. Uh, sometimes we make God very impersonal by saying just Father. But it's my Father. It's very personal. It says, verse 40, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he says to Peter, so you could not keep watch with me for an hour? The one that was saying that, um, I'm not going to deny you. If I have to die with you, I will die with you. I'm, I'm there. I didn't think I'd do that. Uh, I'm there with you. We're tight. And what is he doing? He's sleeping. He's there sleeping. He, he can't stay with them. And, and, and it says, it's interesting, because he says, you could not keep watch. He doesn't say prayer. It's the same word that he said before, which is to stay alert. See, had he said, I want you to be praying, uh, Peter could have been like, I was praying. I just had my eyes closed. That's what a lot of people tell me in church, too. I was just praying for your sermon. Um, he wanted them to be alert, to be paying attention. But they couldn't do that. They couldn't do it at all. They were there sleeping. It says in verse 41, keep watching, it's an imperative, and praying. Be alert and pray. What purpose? That you may not enter into temptation so that you won't be tempted to do what was wrong. We're back at, at the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. It says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, as we look at this, we remember back when Jesus was coming up from Jericho, and uh, there was a crowd. Remember, he healed the blind guy? There was a crowd. He gets up to Jerusalem, and now the crowd is yelling. Hosanna, son of David. And there's a crowd when he's healing the people in the courtyard of the temple. And there's a crowd when he's teaching about certain things. And, but now it's gotten, there's no crowd. In fact, there was the 12, but one has taken off. There's 11. And eight of them are by the entrance. And there was three, but the three were asleep and he's alone. He's alone. He's just with God. That's it. There's no one else. 
There's no crowds with him. There's no disciples with him. They're off sleeping. It's just Jesus and God. See, uh, following God at times can be rather lonely. The psalmist explained it in Psalm 23 that it's uh, passing through the valley of the shadow of death. But in those moments, that's when the good shepherd is still with the sheep. I would encourage you to cultivate your walk with the Lord because as you follow God, there'll be times in your life that it'll be incredibly lonely. You'll look for a spouse, you'll look for children, you'll look for your church, and as much as we would want to be there with you, the fact is, you'll be all alone. Except for, you'll be with God there. And you have to cultivate your walk with the Lord because everyone will fail you except God. I was, um, uh, the moment I lost uh, hope in humanity, as we heard in the testimony, I was driving from North Carolina to Pennsylvania. We were driving all night long. I was going up to a Bible college there. Uh, I was very tired. My mom came with me to, to go up to the Bible college, and she was asleep. At some point, uh, around three or so in the morning, she hears, hears the, bu -bu 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 -bu, you know, where I'm going off the road, you know, trying to stay awake. And she turns over and she asks, are you okay? I said, no, I'm really tired. I, I need a break. And she goes, okay. And she fell back to sleep. And that's when I lost hope in humanity. Um, there are moments where you're just by yourself. There's no one else. No, no one can help you in that situation. There's no one that can come alongside you and help except for your Father if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Cultivate that walk with the Lord. He'll never abandon you. He'll never leave you. He, he never gets distracted with other things. He's never off busy doing other things. In that moment that you need Him, He is there for you. Now, why is it not possible for the cup to be passed? Well, it's the cup of the new covenant. Israel is anticipating this new covenant. Also, we benefit from the mediator of the new covenant. Uh, through the uh, Abrahamic covenant, there was going to be a blessing for all the whole world. And, and we, we benefit through the mediator of the new covenant when we put our faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There, there is no other way. And, and that needs to be very clear. If, if Christ doesn't pay for the penalties of all sins, th there's no plan B. There's like, well, I'm just going to be really good. I'm going to try to attend church better. I'm going to be nicer, whatever that is. There, there is no plan B. He has to do this. He has to pay the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, the last thing that we'll see is that prayer will strengthen you to follow God. Prayer will strengthen you to follow God. And we see that in verses 42 through 46. Uh, in, in this section, we can see uh, in a very interesting way how Jesus comes a second time and uh, he says again, my father, uh, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he submits to the father's will. And then he comes back to them again and he finds them asleep because their eyes are heavy. So he leaves them. He goes and prays a third time and says the same words. So he's 
had three times of prayer, while we don't know of any times of prayer of the disciples. Then he says in verse uh, 45, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? There's an interesting thing here. We don't have a, a lot of time to get into it. But some of your translations will have a uh, declaration like sleep here and rest. Uh, and that's because those two verbs uh, have the same, they're declined the same way. They are formed the same way both in the imperative and in the indicative. And so the person who's translating has to make a decision. Is he making a statement or is he asking a question? And uh, the New American Standard has decided to uh, translate as a question. Uh, like, really? You're still sleeping? Uh, behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now get up and let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. There is a, um, there's a contrast being formed here between Jesus and his disciples. On one side, Jesus has spent the night praying, and in verse 46, he is ready for what's coming. The, the one who betrays me is at hand, and he's ready. Whereas the disciples, on the other hand, have spent the night resting. They thought that if they rested, they would be able to fight off the temptation better. They thought if they had a good night's sleep, maybe they could uh, fight whatever came, uh, what was ever coming to them, but it didn't help them at all. Because as the story unfolds, they take off running. Many times we think that if we just get a little bit more rest, we'll be a little bit more helpful. But here we see a contrast between someone who prays and someone who rests. Now, if we were to have a conference on uh, church growth, we wanted to grow, fill up every chair in here, socially distanced, et cetera, et cetera. But fill it up. Um, we'd get some guy to come in and some guru, and, and he'd have a brainstorm session with us, and we would throw out all types of ideas. I mean, we'd just boom, 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 boom. And I bet none of us would say, we need to pray. We need to pray, and we need to pray, and we need to pray. I bet if we had a seminar for marriages, to help people in their marriages and to give ideas. And I'm sure we'd have a brainstorming session there and people would say, do dates, go to the movies, write little notes, leave sticky notes on people's mirrors and so forth. And I bet you none of us would say pray, pray, pray. But if we were going to have a guy come in and tell us about how to help our kids so that they... Uh, can grow up to be strong boys and strong girls for the Lord. And, um, we'd get all types of ideas. I mean, all types of ideas. But I bet you we wouldn't say pray, pray, pray. And the reason we wouldn't say pray is because, as I said in the illustration, sometimes we see things and we say, that doesn't have the power for the change that I'm looking for. So we disregard it. And yet Jesus says, pray, keep watch, pray, so that you don't enter into temptation. What's the temptation? To think that raising children, the, the idea that having a good marriage, that having a fruitful church is something that I can conjure up 
when really it's only by the grace of God. And unless God moves in my kids, unless God moves in my marriage, and unless God moves in this church, it's nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the temptation is to think, I can somehow manage this. I got a trick. I got a trick with my kids. I read a book, five minutes, and I can fix them. I went to a seminar, and I know how to get this thing filled up. And humanly thinking, the temptation is, I can do this. But it's only through prayer. Because it's something that God has to do. And there's nothing in us, not even together, that can do what God can do. And Jesus taught his disciples that obeying God is hard, but praying will strengthen you to obey God's will. Are we praying? Are we really keeping alert and praying so that we don't enter into temptation? We're about to move into our time of, our, of the Lord's Supper. I would like to have a word of prayer, and then I'll ask uh, if uh, Rocky and uh, Chris could come up. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we examine our hearts, I'm sure we've all fallen short of praying, praying, praying. Father, I bet many times we've thought that on our own strength we can somehow make this church grow. On our own strength we can fix our marriage. On our own strength we can fix our kids. On our own strength we can do this. We just need a little rest and we'll be able to do it. Father, forgive us for that arrogance. And I pray that we will seek you, humbly seek you at work in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. I would invite uh, Rocky and Chris to come up. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here, uh, Paul writes to this church and uh, explains to them about the Lord's Supper. And he says, uh, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Uh, the bread represents his body that was given for us. It's a symbol. And it reminds us as we take it in, our need for Christ. Rocky, would you please thank the Lord for that body that was given for us?